Holy Word to Jeremiah chapter 6, Jeremiah 6, verses 1 through 15. Flee for safety, O people of Benjamin, from the midst of Jerusalem. Blow the trumpet in Tekoa and raise a signal on Beth Hakarim, for disaster looms out of the north and great destruction. The lovely and delicately bred I will destroy, the daughter of Zion. Shepherds with their flocks shall come against her. They shall pitch their tents around her. They shall pasture each in his place. Prepare war against her. Arise and let us attack at noon. Woe to us, for the day declines, for the shadows of evening lengthen. Arise and let us attack by night and destroy her palaces. For thus says Yahweh of hosts, Cut down her trees, cast up a siege mound against Jerusalem. This is the city that must be destroyed. There is nothing but oppression within her. As a well keeps its water fresh, so she keeps fresh her evil. Violence and destruction are heard within her. Sickness and wounds are ever before me. Be warned, O Jerusalem, lest I turn from you in disgust, lest I make you a desolation, an uninhabited land. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, They shall glean thoroughly as a vine the remnant of Israel. Like a grape gatherer, pass your hand again over its branches. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are uncircumcised, they cannot listen. Behold, the word of Yahweh is to them an object of scorn, they take no pleasure in it. Therefore I am full of the wrath of Yahweh, I am weary of holding it in. Pour it out upon the children in the street and upon the gatherings of young men also. Both husband and wife shall be taken, the elderly and the very aged. Their houses shall be turned over to others, their fields and wives together. For I will stretch out my hand against the inhabitants of the land, declares Yahweh. For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. They, were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No. They were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punished them, they shall be overthrown, says Yahweh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, have mercy on our souls for our flippant, irreverent, unheeding, calloused hardness to Your Word. 
And Father, I pray that we would heed that warning that we see both in the Old and New Testaments. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as those in the wilderness. So grant grace, Father. Send your Spirit. Bless the preaching of your Word that we might receive it with the soft soil of hearts full of repentance and faith. Rather than Your Word being an aroma of death unto death this morning. We are inadequate for this in every way. And so we look to You pleading Christ, knowing that every promise is yes and amen in Him. In His name, amen. In our most recent study of Jeremiah, the text has often taken the form of poetic dialogue with the chief partners being God, Jeremiah, and Judah. And that continues this morning, but another voice is added to the conversation. And the conversations seem less connected. They are less connected. It's as though with this particular text, we're giving a series of of images, a montage of conversations that are strewn together in such a way that this ominous mood is built and sustained. We're, we're by these vignettes that are kind of statically clung one next to the other, eerily anticipating this judgment to come at any moment. As we move from one scene to another rapidly, we sense the imminence of this danger being spoken of. The dam is about to burst. God's wrath is on the cusp of boiling over. The pot has grown so hot, it does not matter if you remove it from the flame. It is certain to boil over. The first section of our text opens and closes with warnings. Verses 1 through 8, verse 1, flee for safety. Verse 8, be warned, O Jerusalem. In between, in this first section, we'll see the reason they're to flee. The reason they're warned is because of destruction. And then we'll see the why behind that why. The evil involved, which God is judging. God's people are to flee, blow the trumpet, raise a signal. Warning is to sound from all around Jerusalem. The people of Benjamin are told to flee. This would be to the north of Jerusalem. The trumpet blown in Tekoa, Tekoa being approximately 11 miles south of Jerusalem. Beth Hakarim, as best we can guess, was west of Jerusalem. So from all around Jerusalem... Warnings are to be sounded. And this recalls chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, where God said, Declare in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say, Blow the trumpet through the land. 
Cry aloud and say, assemble and let us go into the fortified cities. Raise a standard toward Zion. Flee for safety. Stay not, for I bring disaster from the north and great destruction. But in chapter 4, you see they were told to assemble and flee to the fortified cities. And now they're being told to flee from the fortified city, Jerusalem. Well, as in chapter 4, the point was not assemble and get to the fortified cities and you might have hope of resisting and achieving victory. That was not the point at all. So here, the idea is not flee for your lives that you might live. Whenever a parent tells you the rod is coming, the absolute worst thing you can do is run. God's people are behaving as if judgment won't happen and by these warnings, both to flee to the fortified cities or flee from the city, the idea is not that you can withstand attack or run in hope of escaping. The point is, you're behaving as if it won't happen and it's coming. Obedience to this warning does not mean fleeing from the Babylonians, but fleeing to God. Sinner, do not merely try to flee from judgment. Flee to the Christ who bore judgment in place of sinners. Don't try to hide your sin. Don't try to conceal it. Don't try to uh, convince yourself that judgment won't come. And if you are certain that it will come, don't try to cover over it with some kind of good works or act of sacrifice and service that you think will make it right. You cannot get away from judgment. You can only run to the one who bore it in your place. There's no shelter strong enough to hide you from His wrath outside of Christ. There's no place you can flee to that He is not already there. If you desire to flee for safety, you can only flee to the one from whom you need fear. Flee to God in faith and repentance, seeking refuge in the Christ crucified for sinners. And the reason for this warning, flee for safety, be warned, the reason is that destruction looms out of the north. You remember the image we saw in chapter 1 of this pot facing away from the north, precariously tilted towards Jerusalem, ready to spill out. This destruction looms over them, ready to spill out in any moment. It is resolved, you see. God declares, I will destroy, verse 2, the lovely and delicately bred. I will destroy. The iron of God's wrath is soon to meet her porcelain figure and shatter it to pieces. Judah is, verse 3, to be grazed down. The military might of Babylon with their tents is being compared to those of shepherds coming with their flocks, setting up their tents to graze in a new pasture. The military might of Judah is like grass, 
facing an army of sheep. When God brings His judgment, it is as futile to resist as a army of kindergartners attacking a tank with spitwads. Abruptly, the scene shifts from this third-person account of, of looking at these destroyers pitching their tents to a conversation within the tents. Verses 4 and 5. Prepare war against her. Arise, let us attack at noon, one says. To which someone interjects, Woe to us, for the day declines, the shadows of evening lengthen. They're eager to attack at noon, but someone says, this is not strategically desirable. Much of the day has been spent. But then someone is so bent that they counter, let's attack by night. Let's destroy them. What's the point of this conversation within the tents of Babylon? The military leaders as they're discussing their strategy. Why are we brought into this? I think it's simply this. You're meant to see that Babylon is bent on destroying Jerusalem. They're hungry for it. Zealous for it. The prime time to attack is not before them. But nonetheless, they want to go forward. Let's attack at night. The city is to be destroyed. Why is Babylon so keen on destroying Jerusalem? The simplest answer is God said so. Verse 6. For thus says Yahweh. Verse 6 is explaining verse 5. They are eager and bent to destroy her. Why? Because God says so. He says, to make a siege against her, cut down her trees, cast up a siege mound against Jerusalem. You got two different kinds of ways that God is speaking and commanding in this first part of this passage. Verse 6, flee for safety, he says to Benjamin. And now he says to Babylon, cut down her trees, cast up a siege mound against Jerusalem. In the first instance, Benjamin actually hears these words pronounced through his prophet to his people. Benjamin hears, flee, and she disobeys. In the second one, Babylon doesn't hear this command, and she obeys. In the first instance, we have what's spoken of often as God's preceptive will, His precepts, His commands, as He delivers them to His people that can be or may not be obeyed. In the second, we have God's decretive will, His sovereign will, His will of decree. He tells Babylon, cast up siege mounds against her. She does not hear these words, but He's sovereignly bringing them about through her. The reason Babylon advances so eagerly is because Yahweh is sovereignly moving her to do so. And there's a bit of satirical irony, I think, that's involved here. Cut down her trees and and build up these mounds of siege works against Jerusalem. First of all, you've got to 
understand how precious lumber was in Jerusalem. You remember whenever they built the temple and even Solomon's house, David's house, that they, they imported the lumber, the cedars of Lebanon. They were brought in from outside. The, there weren't a, a large number of mighty trees around there that could be used for building materials. That's why the dominant building material is stone, not wood. And so wood is precious anyway, but remember, what were they doing with the wood? You remember earlier they called the wood Father, which in itself was mocking because the deity that would be corresponding to that wood was Asherah, which they would refer to as Mother. The idols were associated with these woods, these groves were the high places, these hilltop groves. So it's a higher place and there's these trees that are associated with the deities that they're worshiping, these false gods. And here, God says, cut their gods down. Their gods are literally then attacking them. And bounds are being built. Their high places are destroying them. But next we're told the why behind the why. Verse 6. This city must be punished. There is nothing but oppression in her. So the reason why to flee from Jerusalem is because it's a concentrated pool of evil and wrath is going to flow there. Note all the levels of why we've, we've unveiled so far. Flee. Why? Destruction. Why destruction? Because God said so. Why did God say so? Because Israel, Judah, is a reservoir of evil. Earlier, God commanded the nation to Run to and fro throughout the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Search the squares to see if you can find a man. One who does justice and seeks truth that I may pardon her. So like Sodom, Jerusalem is ripe for wrath. She's full of nothing but sin. Nothing but oppression is within her. She is, verse 7, a well of fresh evil. You remember in chapter 2, God said, My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And having done that, she has herself now become a well of continually replenishing evil. As Yahweh looks into this well... It's full of violence and destruction. Sickness and wounds are continually before Him. And so God determines to destroy this well full of destruction. And then finally in verse 8, this first passage, part of this passage, we return to warning. He turns His voice back to His people. Be warned, O Jerusalem, lest I turn from you in disgust lest I make you a desolation, an uninhabited land. The implication, Jerusalem is to turn away from her evil, or God will turn away from her. 
As God looks into this well, he's disgusted. But you, you shouldn't get the idea that God has a weak constitution. He turns away from them in disgust that he might turn towards them and bring desolation. He turns away his covenant love is the idea. And he turns towards them in righteous wrath. In this next section, verse 9, God begins by unfolding the destruction that's to come with a different metaphor, that of a vineyard. They shall glean thoroughly as a vine, the remnant of Israel, like a grape gatherer, pass your hand again over its branches. You remember earlier in chapter 2, God said, Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? So there the vine was altogether Israel, the United Kingdom. But now, the remnant of Israel is to be thoroughly gleaned. This is Judah. So Israel's already been taken captive. So you have what's left, Judah. Israel's already been gleaned, and now the remnant itself is to be thoroughly gleaned. And curiously, first, a they is said to glean. They shall glean, obviously referring to Babylon, but then you have a singular your, like a grape gatherer, pass your hand again over its branches. So Babylon's gleaning is being made parallel to Jeremiah's gleaning. The solution to this riddle was given at the beginning of the book. You remember Jeremiah's calling was put to him this way. I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up, to break down, to destroy, to overthrow, to build up, and to plant. How would Jeremiah build up and destroy nations. His first vision immediately after that calling, chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, was seeing an almond branch. And the word for almond there sounds like the word for watch. He says, see, I've, I, I see an almond branch. And Yahweh said to me, you have seen well, for I'm watching over my word to perform it. So the words that God is going to speak to His people through Jeremiah, God is watching over them to perform them. So whenever He speaks judgment to Babylon through Jeremiah, He is speaking to Babylon, sovereignly working that those words be done. Jeremiah passes his hands over the grapes, as it were, as he's speaking about Babylon being used by God in judgment. And as he's doing that, God is sovereignly speaking to watch over His Word and accomplish it. The words of God never fall dead on paper. They are not lost or forgotten. Though we do not have the original manuscripts, the Word of God never fails. It doesn't rot away with the paper on which it was penned. It endures forever. 
So thinking and longing that this word is to be heard, Jeremiah then pleads, to whom shall I speak? That they may hear. Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. Because her ears are uncircumcised, she cannot hear. So Jeremiah laments, but remember, earlier we already saw this, there is a kind of hearing that God wishes the unhearing to hear. Saw it in chapter 5, verse 21. Hear this, O foolish and senseless people who have eyes but do not see, who have ears but hear not. You who cannot hear, hear this. And in this, God isn't shouting louder in irritation. He is speaking His wrath and judgment. Jeremiah as a prophet was both to build up and tear down. And what you need to see in this instance is that these warnings are not meant to build up. These warnings are meant to tear down as they evidence the hardness of heart that such warnings are met with. Jeremiah is being, in this we'll see, conformed to his message. First though, uncircumcised ears cannot listen. You remember Jesus told the Jews, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. He didn't say, You're not a sheep because you don't believe. He said you don't believe because you're not my sheep. Or put it this way. The reason you can't hear is because you're not my sheep. My sheep hear. He didn't say the reason you're not a sheep is because you don't hear. But the reason you don't hear is because you're not a sheep. You're uncircumcised. And because you're uncircumcised In your ears, they cannot listen. It's impossible. Paul explains the default condition of our ears and our hearts in 1 Corinthians 2 when he says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them. There is an inability... Because they are spiritually discerned. But this hardness of heart does not mean that the word of God fails. In the second letter to the Corinthians, Paul said, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. And so this is why whenever Jeremiah laments, who will hear? The word to them is an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. Such that I'm now full of 
your wrath against them. I'm weary of holding it back. And God's reply is basically, that's exactly what I was aiming for. He's conformed his messenger to his message. God is long-suffering and patient. But now His wrath is ready to boil over. And so He has poured His Word into Jeremiah again and again. But this Word, finding no reception, has built up within Him. And now He is ready to burst. Jeremiah is, as it were, a dam with no release And the floodwaters of God's wrath have built inside him the accumulated rains of these warnings of grace and mercy having not been received have built up into a flood of wrath ready to burst forth. And God says, pour it out. You remember in chapter 5 and verse 14, God said, Because you, speaking, it's plural, speaking to Judah, because you have spoken this word, you remember that this word was, He will do nothing, which was evidence that they cannot hear. They're senseless. They have ears, but they can't hear. Because you, Judah, have spoken this word, He'll do nothing. I'm making my words in your, it's a singular you now. I'm making my words in your mouth a fire and this people would. And the fire shall consume them. These words of wrath are terrifyingly to be poured out on all without distinction. Children in the street, gatherings of young men, husband and wife, the elderly, the aged, verse 11. Their houses, their fields, their wives, everything is to be turned over to others, verse 12. Just like that hot wind that was spoken of in chapter 4 and verse 11 that comes from the bare heights in the desert. That hot wind was not one to winnow or cleanse, he said. It didn't separate the wheat from the chaff. It didn't have any kind of benefits. It came and it destroyed all without distinction. Likewise, this flood carries forth all. The reason is that God is stretching out His hand against the inhabitants of the land. Verse 12. Whenever Jeremiah speaks this word, he doesn't hold it back anymore. When Jeremiah speaks this word, Yahweh's hand does his word. So again, the word of God doesn't fall to this earth to evaporate. If it's not received as the rain of grace, it will overwhelm as a flood of wrath. But whenever Yahweh's words fall upon them without distinction, we must not make the mistake of thinking they fall without discretion, as though God were unjust. Because we see from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. This is what they all deserve. This is what we all deserve. And nothing less. 
Whenever Jeremiah surveyed Judah earlier, he said, They have made their faces harder than rock. They've refused to repent. Then I said, These are only the poor. They have no sense. They do not know the way of Yahweh, the justice of their God. I will go to the great and will speak to them. For they know the way of Yahweh, the justice of their God. But they all alike had broken the yoke. They had burst the bonds. From the least to the greatest, all of them. Whenever God surveys the globe in Psalm 53, the results are the same. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. They have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. The flood of God's words of wrath do not sweep away the wicked unjustly. From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They heal the wounds of God's people lightly saying, peace, peace, while he is giving warning after warning of wrath. In this, the prophets don't simply deceive the people, they appease the people. Chapter 5 and verse 31, God explained the prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule at their direction. My people love to have it so. The prophets and the priests are trying to repair a ominously cracked and rupturing dam with scotch tape. But they're speaking Peace doesn't hold back the flood, the burst. It adds to the weight behind it all the more. Sinner, be assured that the dam of God's long-suffering will certainly burst at His discretion. His sovereign timing in a flood that you cannot withstand. And so hear His words of warning and judgment and receive them with repentance or faith. Receive them as a rain of grace or they will all come against you in a flood you cannot resist. Yes, you can find an abundance of false prophets to tell you this is not so. They'll speak peace. They heal the wounds lightly though. They treat internal bleeding with a band-aid. But like children, the masses are just impressed Because it has a cool picture of their superhero, their idol on it. They cover up sickness with slickness, sins with success by numbers. But because our idolatrous ears have been scratched, we receive their words. David Wells gives this dreadfully true diagnosis. The fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is not inadequate technique, insufficient organization, or antiquated music. 
And those who want to squander the church's resources bandaging these scratches will do nothing to staunch the flow of blood that is spilling from its wounds. The fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is that God rests too inconsequentially upon the church. His truth is too distant, His grace too ordinary, His judgment too benign, His gospel too easy, and His Christ is too common. While the blood is gushing out, the floodwaters are rising high, and false prophets are saying, peace. We've brought our idols into the temple of the living God, our own lives, the church. And we're not ashamed, verse 15. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? The evangelical church at large has forgotten how to blush. Her conscience is seared. Sin is overlooked. And dealt with lightly. As Jeremiah put it earlier, she has the forehead of a whore. She refuses to be ashamed. And therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. And likewise, many who are part of the visible church today will be punished on that day when he overthrows the wicked. Whenever the flood comes, it will be evident that many have not built upon the rock of Jesus Christ, but upon the sands of self. A sinner, those who do not know Christ, we lament and we plead that you would hear these warnings as a word of grace. That you would turn from your sins. That you would flee to take refuge in Christ who bore the flood of God's wrath in place of sinners. This is the condemnation we all deserve. We plead as those who found salvation in Christ. We don't plead for you as those who are just. We plead because our God is just. And not only so, but He is the justifier of those who seek refuge in Christ. And so we plead telling you God is just. His wrath is certain. But He is the justifier of all who flee to the Christ who already bore condemnation for those who trust in Him. Saints, the charge to you is do not grow weary in proclaiming His Word. Declare it knowing it will accomplish all His purpose. Both in the justification of sinners who by His grace repent and believe in Christ and in His justice as it falls upon vessels of wrath prepared beforehand for destruction. His word will not return void. Pour it out. Let's pray.
Father, I pray that the good seed of your word has fallen on on good soil and will bring forth fruit unto your glory. Father, we sometimes sow, others water, but we are inadequate and insufficient for this. It is you who must give the increase. And so may your Spirit bring forth repentance and faith in saint and sinner alike now for your glory. Amen.